dead faith versus living faith. That's our topic today. It's a heavy topic. Let me start with a dead battery story to get us going. It was June 16th, 1999. I was living in Thailand with my wife, Caroline. We were clocking the contractions, waiting, wondering, is this the moment that we need to rush out of the door to the hospital? Bags are packed. And indeed, it was time to go. It's time to go. I rushed for the door. I had the bag packed. I got it inside the new truck that was parked conveniently right outside our home. And I couldn't wait to turn on the air conditioner because it's a hot morning in Thailand. And as I started the ignition, nothing. Not even a click, 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 nothing. My wife's in labor. <laughs> Not even a click, 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 nothing. Dead battery. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to leave you with a cliffhanger here. <laughs> Our friend showed up with a live battery and got us to the hospital, and there was a successful delivery of our dear son. Um, dead faith versus living faith. I bring that up as, as an example here today. Uh, we're talking about, for, and again, for some of us as listeners, your faith is living, it's, it's alive. And yet, for others perhaps listening, it might be a little bit like a dead battery that's being carted around, carried around. In fact, it's getting quite exhausting carrying it around uh, because it might be dead. And uh, some of us may even be thinking, well, that's not me. And that's usually one of the striking signature marks of dead faith is it typically says, it's not me. Now, if these words are very striking to you and almost sound very hard and like to the point, welcome to the book of James. We've just entered into the book of James. And each week in our journey through scripture, we've been trying to not only uh, express and teach and show highlights and so forth in that very book, but we even try to present it in a way that it would have been presented or the material is being presented here. James is trying to rattle us. James is a provocateur. He is rattling us and he says, you have faith? That's good. That's good that you have faith. Is it alive? Is your faith living? Or is it dead? Well, let me start by asking this question. What's up with James being so command heavy? It's about a 16 minute read. Maybe I think there's 108 verses and there's 50 plus commandments. Whoa. That's what we'd call a very heavy-handed, command-heavy book of Scripture. And I say, what's up with that? What's going on there? Uh, Throughout history, scholars and historians have said, you know what, this doesn't even need to be in the Bible. It's so command-heavy. I'm wanting to present, though, that within these 108 verses, 50-plus commandments, God's grace God's grace and empowerment to obey is woven all the way throughout. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So if you're hearing us talk right now about the book of James and you're starting to get nervous, like, oh no, all these commandments, or I knew that's why I didn't like Christianity, a bunch of do's and don'ts, don't hear that. Hear that there's God's grace flowing abundantly all the way throughout this book, just as it has 
all the way through all of these previous books. And so, um, by the way, it brings up two Bible study tips. If I could just pass off a couple of Bible study tips or in your Bible reading, uh, two great questions I believe to ask as you're going through a text or a passage in your morning or evening devotion. One is, one is, where's humanity's fallen condition in what I'm reading right here? Where, where do I see the fallen condition of our humanity expressed in this text of scripture that I'm reading this morning in my devotion? Some people just leave right there. They've had enough. They are overwhelmed at the brokenness of the uh, human story. And that's why I lead to the second question in our Bible study or in your time of reading is to ask, where is God's grace in the passage? It'll always be there. If it's not in that verse that you read, it's going to come before it or below it. Make sure you're reading in context. But there's always a brokenness part of humanity that's being displayed for us. And then God's grace is coming into that. It's always beautifully coming into what we need. So real quickly, let's go through the quick um, overview of all the chapters. Everybody ready? Here we go. Uh, we'll, we'll go. We'll do this quickly and we'll try to get into a sample passage and draw out some um, applications for us. Chapter 1 uh, famously says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Whoa, I'm listening. I'm listening. If God is like right here going to sort of tell us what acceptable, pure religion looks like, chapter 1 of James says, it's to look after orphans. It's to look after widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's what chapter 1 says. James is hitting hard. James chapter 2 says, Suppose a person comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person also comes into your gathering, and the implication is not wearing the aforementioned, don't show the one wearing the, the gold-colored ring and all the fine clothing. Don't show them favoritism. Don't treat them differently than you would treat the poor person or the person who's suffering. It's, according to James in chapter 2, it's not only discrimination, but he says it's evil. He just calls it out. He says it's evil. It's evil when you and I treat that person and give them special attention compared to the other type of person. And that's because, according to James chapter 2, there's no favoritism with God. God doesn't view the wealthy that way and the poor this other way. God is a friend of the poor. God is also a friend of the wealthy. God is a friend of sinners. That's chapter 2. For chapter 3, it's all about our words and wisdom. You know, there's this famous teaching about the tongue. And it's power to direct us and it's going to control sort of what we say and why we say what we say is connected to our heart. And he says in chapter 3, with the same mouth we unleash pain on people and then we turn right around with the same tongue and we offer praise to God. Same tongue. And it's God who graciously gives fools wisdom and true wisdom is this gift from God that he alone gives us. There's a lot in here, I told you. I 
told you, chapter four. Chapter four is we judge and we condemn others and then we go talk badly about them behind their back. That's what we do. We size them up. We make conclusions about them. And then we go and say things about them behind their back. And yet God gives grace to the humble. Grace upon grace. That's chapter four. Chapter five is there's this danger of wealth. Chapter five does not go after wealth saying wealth is bad. Nope. It's not what it's saying. It's saying there's a danger of wealth and there's this arrogance of thinking that it's going to be around forever. I'll take it with me. Or I'll leave it to someone else who can take it with them. Or they're just going to pass it along. And yet, he's saying, James, your wealth is one day just going to rot. Just like you. Ouch. Thanks, James. And he's really trying to help us see that in a Jesus community, the divisions of wealth and social status are broken down. That's what this religion called Christianity is really about is those barriers between wealthy and poor are being dismantled. They're being taken down. And it's really about God is a God of compassion and mercy, and he's a God who answers prayer. So once again, God's grace flows richly through this book that's full of commandments. Don't miss that. Well, a little bit about our author, audience, and context. It's from James. James, it says the brother of Jesus. Well, the Greek here, it really just means a cousin of Jesus. We don't know that literally he was the brother of Jesus. I'm sorry, we think it's more like a cousin of Jesus. Uh, he's a leader in the church in Jerusalem. We do know that about him. We know that he's wise. We know that uh, James is a peacemaker. He's leading the church there in Jerusalem with peace, but also with a lot of depth and wisdom for these people. It's written to this church in Jerusalem. They're Jewish Christians that are gathering, and uh, they're suffering. You can go back and reference this in Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 15. This is pretty much the first gathering uh, of a Christian community, this Jerusalem church. And the historical setting for them, the cultural milieu that they find themselves in, is there's a famine that's going on. There's uh, poverty that's happening, and there's persecution from Jewish leaders that they're enduring. And so James is, is writing to them to warn them, to challenge them. Hey, you, you don't want to have a dead type faith. You want to have a faith that's alive. And then it's also written to us because if you look at the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, James greets all the Christians living outside of Jerusalem. So yes, he's writing to those in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem church, but he's writing to uh, all Christians everywhere. So this book was written to you. We can access this book on, that, on those very grounds. I also asked this this week going through it. What influenced James Wright? What influenced him? Two major things I saw in this book that he's influenced by. Number one, Jesus' very teaching, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. As you read back through the book of James, um, put your study, uh, Bible study uh, glasses on and notice the many times that James is really referring right back to uh, a sermon that he most likely heard from Jesus called Sermon on the Mount. Reference Matthew chapter 5. 
James is pulling from that. He's borrowing that. He's he's influenced by that. He, He was steeped in that. So he's not just some disgruntled person trying to make you feel guilty that you know, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you have dead faith and all that. No, 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 wrong story. He's pulling from Jesus' teaching. The second influence I notice is he's pulling from biblical wisdom book called Proverbs. Beautiful how he does this. Particularly Proverbs, those poems in chapters one through nine. And what's his goal? I also ask that question. What is James' goal in writing this? If you're listening to this, you may be thinking, James' goal is just to make me feel guilty. I knew it. (laughs) It was his goal to make me feel like I'm not a good Christian. Nope. You missed James' goal. James' goal is to help his audience become wise. Wise. And that is by living according to Jesus' summary of the Torah, right? Those first five books of the Bible, which Jesus summarizes in the New Testament, saying two great commandments. The first one, love God. And the second one, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. That's what a wise person does. Uh, The other strange thing I'll mention as his goal in writing this is he uses the word perfect seven times in this book. And he's saying so that we as fractured people, he knows we have inconsistencies within ourselves as humans, but he's saying that we might become perfect. Okay, he does not mean having no sin or having no imperfections. Again, you need to lean on the Greek meaning of that word and it means wholeness. It means wholeness. God is on a mission to restore fractured people and make them whole. That is his purpose in writing this. He knows we're fractured. He knows I'm inconsistent. He knows I'm weak. And at times my uh, faith is really struggling, but he's, his goal is to help us become wise in obeying God. All right, everybody still with me? Great. Great. All right, let's, let's test drive this. Let's test drive James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 is our sample passage we'll look at, and uh, I'll read it out loud. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish! Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God? 
by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So, again, if you're zoning out a little bit, let me try to pull us back in and ask a question. How is your life transformed by your faith? How is your life transformed by your faith? Not a faith on the shelf somewhere. Not just an easy believism. Hey, we got to have faith. But how does your faith transform the life that you're living right now? And I've got four points I'm going to try to make here regarding dead faith versus living faith. First point is, dead faith is empty confession. Oh, it's going to say a lot. It's going to say, I believe, but it's a dead confession. There's an ability here. It's very interesting here that James is telling this, but there's an ability to profess faith without possessing faith. Yeah, you can have it, you can say you have it, but you don't truly have it. Verse 14, it says, what good is it if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Verse 17, as we keep looking, it says, unless your faith produces good deeds, it's dead. Verse 19, this one's almost comical, although it's not. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, oh, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. I can remember being a fraternity brother in college and a fraternity brother at a party one night asking me if I was a Christian. And my response was, hell yeah, we all are. We're Americans. (laughs) Saying one thing, but really, no life at all connected to Christ. Verse 20, it says, you foolish person. He's gently saying that to you and me. You you foolish person. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless? Now at this point, if you're thinking through this with me, you start going, but but, but wait a minute. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul, isn't what the, the Bible, isn't this what the Protestant Reformation was all about is to teach us that Salvation comes by faith alone. Isn't isn't James contradicting that? For James to be saying such a thing as this? For James, he's saying faith must, must be, and it will be, but it won't be left alone. It is faith alone in Christ, but that faith won't be left alone. Faith in Christ is going to inevitably lead to a changed life. It will. It must. That's how the gears of it all, it works. 
And so it seems like a contradiction, and I found this quote from C.S. Lewis very helpful this week. It comes from Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says, Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home is good actions or faith in Christ. I have no right, really, to speak on such a difficult question, but it does seem to me like asking which blade of a pair of scissors is most necessary. Did you catch that? Both blades of the scissor are necessary. Which way is it? Is it faith in Christ alone? Or is it, as Paul would teach, or is it as James is teaching, your faith is going to lead to good works, good actions, deeds? The answer is yes. We need to hear both James and Paul. First of all, James and Paul knew each other. They were colleagues. Again, go look at Acts chapter 15, Galatians chapter 2. They knew each other. They knew each other's teaching. They were familiar with one another. And James is a little different. James is a provocateur. He's wanting to rattle you. He's wanting to challenge you and have us think, wow, is my faith dead or is it alive? I think the reflection verse at this point is to be mindful of Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10. Some of us have memorized, memorized verses 8 and 9, but I want to read it in context with verse 10 also in there. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast about it. And here's verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance that we might walk in them. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, for some of us, we would say we're a Christian. You know, we, we would have this confession of, I'm a Christian, but it's really perhaps just a traditional thing that we're saying. That was me in the fraternity. Well, my parents are Christians. I'm in a Christian nation, Right? That's a whole other discussion. And for some of us, it's mere intellectualism. Oh, I believe intellectually God exists, so forth. But in terms of it transforming my life, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. So James is stirring. James is provoking us to reflect and process, do I have living faith? Do you? Second point, dead faith is false compassion. Now, if you're not a Christian and you read the book of James, you love it. You love the book of James because you're saying, go get them, James. Go after those Christians, bunch of hypocrites. They say they love the poor and they're doing nothing about it. They want God's justice, but they don't give a rip. Verse 15 and 16, we're just reading scripture together, and it says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes, daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Again, this is not to be guilt-ridden, nor does this mean every person, every scenario, situation that you and I find ourselves in, that we're supposed to enter into that. That's not what this is saying. But I think it does speak into how often do we say, 
I'm praying for you. I'll be praying for you. And do nothing else. That, 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 ought to, that ought to alert you and I as we think about our own lives here. How often might we say to someone, thoughts and prayers, no actions. Dead faith is false compassion. And we know the saying, we're very, we're very familiar with the saying, the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Oh man, be warm, be well fed. I'll see you later. Or it sucks for you. Or you should have made some different decisions in your life and you wouldn't be in such a bind. All those things, good intentions, I really do want you to be warm. I just don't want to do anything about it myself. So living faith is not a matter of words or intentions, but actions. And I think as we think through this book of James, you've got to ask the question, why is one's display of compassion so tightly connected to the message of Christianity? Why is that? Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus. Think of the story of Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, when he, it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He didn't just feel some tingly kind of way about it. He, he was moved with compassion for them. He healed the sick. He fed the poor. And that's why mercy isn't optional. Mercy is not some add-on to the Christian life. Oh, I passed the first level. I kind of got my doctrine in line, and so now I'm going to, I'll just do a little add-on. Just add a little bit more compassion. That's not how it works. Or 1 John, which we'll be getting to that book in a few weeks from now. 1 John chapter 3 says, They see their brother in need and they have no pity on them. I want you to imagine if you were in need. And you've been there. What meant more to you? Somebody's words or somebody's actions? to come into that room or to come into that situation and help you in a way that you needed it. And our motive sometimes is it's our arrogant anticipation of being thanked. Isn't that sick? I wonder if they're going to thank me. Reflection question on this point is who do you see? Who do you see? And, and, and are we prepared or just absolutely caught off guard and just like, okay, I'll, I'll pray for you? Who are you considering better than yourself? I told you James was hard hitting. And yet, grace, don't forget God's grace. In the midst of all this, uh, the, the third point here as we transition now to living faith. We could talk a whole lot more about dead faith, but now we're going to get to living faith. Living faith is trust in God, especially in the midst of a stressful and uncertain future. So we don't just mean, oh, trust God. No, no, let's give some specificity to it. Trusting in God in a stressful situation. 
Trusting in God with ambiguity about mine and your future. That's what it means to believe in God, have faith, trust in, lean upon God. And so that's why he uses an example like Abraham. There's brilliance in the way that these people write these books, I'm telling you. He's not just randomly saying stuff because he's wanting to rant about stuff. He takes a case study like Abraham. Look at verse 21 through 24. It's beautiful. He knows, and if we know our Bibles in Genesis chapter 22, he knows that Abraham gives up what is most precious to him, his only son, Isaac. And if prior to uh, Genesis chapter 22, to follow the biblical narrative here, there's been a promise that through Abraham, all the world's going to be blessed. In fact, it's going to come through one seed. Well, they wait 99 years to get pregnant and to finally have that seed, and now they're going to lose it. Oh no. In fact, if you look back in this chapter 22, it says his son, his only son, I think it appears 11 times in only 14 verses. It's trying to tell you something there. I think it's trying to tell us, the story of Abraham is trying to tell us, and why James is citing Abraham is because Faith is trusting in a God who's going to be in the midst of your stress and in the midst of your stressful situation and your uncertain future. Because if it's not real faith in that realm of life, who needs it? It does you no good. Sacrifice Isaac? I mean, it makes no sense, right? We can't see the future. Abraham obeys he validates and demonstrates his faith as alive. Not dead, it's alive. In verse 23 here, he talks more about Abraham by saying that Abraham believed and obeyed God not because he was afraid of God. Some of us are right there. Okay, God, I'll believe you because I'm, I'm just afraid. I grew up that way. It's my family of origin, culture of origin, something, but I'll obey because I know I'm supposed to. Verse 23 beautifully says, he obeyed because he was the, quote, friend of God. Whoa. Whoa. A friend of God. Um, he obeyed not to be loved. He's obeying God because he knows he is loved. Huge difference in the way we live our lives of faith. Living faith, true faith, not dead as we described earlier, but living faith is always certain that even though my future is uncertain, God is certain. God knows me. God's going to provide for me in a certain way. So now back to our story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God does provide another way. Isaac, the only son, is not sacrificed. It's beautiful in Genesis chapter 22 as Abraham is taking Isaac to the top of the mountain to sacrifice his only son. Isaac says, Father, the fire, the wood, we have. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham answers his son's honest question. Son, we shall go worship and we will return. That's profound. Abraham knew that Isaac, his son and father, going to do this thing, but yet we will both return. I don't know how. 
You don't have, you don't have to know how in, your, in terms of your future, my future, the ambiguity of it all, but living faith has a certainty. It doesn't come from within me or you. It's God that gives it. There's a certainty. And that's what the entire Bible seeks to ask that same question that Isaac is asking. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? That's the story of the Bible. Where is the sacrifice? Christ is that sacrifice. Christ is that lamb, later referred to in the New Testament, that he's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. On to our fourth point here. Living faith is for normal people. Normal people. I love that James includes Rahab. Again, great and uh, great. Um, he's very intentional in the way that he follows up after the story of Abraham. Because you, because you could read Abraham and go, "Oh man, I'm just, I'm just not. You know, I don't have that much faith like Abraham. He's such a star. He's so powerful with all his, all his faith. Look at him go." But living faith is for normal people like you and like me. He mentions Rahab of all people. I mean, isn't that wonderful news that this, in James' book here, he doesn't end with Abraham's heroic faith, but he talks about, he talks about Rahab. And I think the point in him bringing up Rahab as a case study here is to remind us that it's not about your great faith. It's about how great God is. The story of Rahab found in Joshua chapter 2. story of a prostitute. James uses her, uh, unlike the armchair philanthropist that he cites earlier in his book, go in peace, stay warm. I'll just be an armchair philanthropist. I'll pray for you. Unlike that, he brings up Rahab, who with great faith reaches out to those in need, places herself in great danger, and she did that at great personal risk to meet the needs of God's people. By faith, she did that. By faith. It's for normal people. I mean, yeah, there's Daniel in the lion's den. Noah built the ark. David killing Goliath. But what about normal people? How about cut the hype? And how about, where's faith for a normal person like me? In conclusion, you and I can have all sorts of emotions after reading, or thoughts after reading a book like James. One of those emotions and thoughts is going to be, I need to do more. I need to impress God more. I need to obey more. God's angry with me. Go back and read James again. See God's grace flowing all the way throughout the book of James to enable us to, to empower us in obeying God. Some of us, after reading James, would perhaps admit, I have a dead battery. I have a dead battery. James is talking to me right now. I have a dead battery. Uh, I'm carrying it around, and man, I'm exhausted. And it's, it's been all about me carrying it around, but I need God to give me a new battery. I need live faith. I can't make this happen on my own. And for those of you with live faith, the encouragement is to trust in God 
in the middle of stress and in the middle of an uncertain future. That is when God is really alive in the midst of your faith. And to allow God to to, to lead us into action, I think is another takeaway. Lead us into action in terms of caring for and providing care for those around us that deeply need it. Not just saying, oh, I'll pray for you. Why don't we pray right now and ask God to speak more to us? Lord, we just confess there's way more in this and all the books of the Bible than we can even take in. We agree with the psalmist that says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves. We surrender. We submit to you, and and, and we know that it's you who gives wisdom. And Lord, for those of us, if we're crying out right now uh, w- with a dead faith, Lord, we pray that you would give us living faith. Resurrect us. And Lord, for those of us that, that need encouragement right now, we pray that you would bring encouragement, bring action to our faith, Lord. Show us, perhaps even today, show us who you want us to be extending care towards. Show us. We invite you. And Lord, we thank you for Christ who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us and we pray in his, and pray in his name.